You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, at the end of Luke chapter 9 and the beginning of Luke chapter 10, we have a beautiful passage, really two separate sections, but taken together in their in its entirety, uh, they present for us some beautiful teaching about the life of discipleship, a life of following hard after Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, is on his way to Jerusalem where he would be crucified. This is sort of the swing section of Luke's gospel. He has been presented. There's been a little bit of hostility, but here in chapter 9, verse 57, Jesus now turns his attention to go to Jerusalem, and we have a discipleship section of scripture. Jesus preparing the disciples, lots of teaching in the 10 chapters that are to come. Now, as they were going along the road, verse 57, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So they're going along the road to Jerusalem uh, again to go to the cross. And this person comes to him. Uh, He says to the Lord, and we really don't know the outcome of any of these three men who came to the Lord at this moment. We don't know the background story and we don't know the future that followed. But this first of three men comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, oftentimes this man is skewered for his impulsive desire to follow Jesus. But I understand the feeling that came upon this man. Uh, There was just something about Jesus that drew this man. I, I think there was something about the determination of Jesus in going to Jerusalem. This man was attracted to Christ. And so there might have been some spontaneity, but the man at least committed. And uh, I won't rebuke him for it. I think we need more of that attitude of commitment to the Lord. But Jesus gave the man a sober response. He said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, it's true that Jesus did not always sleep in the great outdoors, but he's making a radical point. In other places, uh, Jesus would teach that you gain homes as a result of giving up your life. But here, what he's trying to communicate to this man is that following Christ is a difficult life. This would be literal for some, but yet spiritual for all who desire to follow after the Lord. We remember, of course, in Hebrews 11, verse 10, speaking of Abraham, who lived a life of faith, we learn that he was one who was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In one sense, all of us as believers desiring to follow after Christ, one thing that we need to understand is that there is a sense of homelessness for those who make Christ their home. In other words, there's this sense within the disciple 
that I'm a pilgrim. I don't belong here. This isn't my ultimate destination. This isn't my final home. And, and I think Jesus is communicating to this man, listen, there is a homelessness that impacts the heart of every disciple. Uh, maybe even at its basis, Jesus is simply saying to this man that there is comfort and then there is following. And if you want to follow me, you're going to have to deny some of your comforts. Now, the next interaction on the road is actually initiated by Jesus. It says in verse 59 that to another, he said, follow me. So Jesus pursued this particular man. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, it's likely that this man wanted to simply wait for his father's death before he went to follow Jesus. Uh, had his father recently died or had his father even been near death on his deathbed, he probably wouldn't even been around Jesus at this time. He would have been at the home caring for his father. Likely what this man is saying is, Lord, uh, let me go and and see my father through the end of his life and then bury him, wrap up the family estate. And after that major obligation of my life is concluded, then I will follow after you. And culturally, this would have often been an understood kind of arrangement. Shame would be brought on his family if he didn't bury his father. Uh, so Jesus here responds in a radical kind of way. Uh, now, he's not, of course, breaking the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. In fact, oftentimes in his ministry, Jesus would reinforce the keeping of the fifth commandment. But here what Jesus seems to be doing is he seems to be rearranging the priorities of this man's life. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus says that, he's obviously not saying, let the physically dead bury the physically dead. That's not an, a possibility. He must be saying, leave the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. In other words, man, you are spiritually alive. And if you are spiritually alive, then get busy about the work that I have invited you uh, into. Just a stern warning uh, and calling from the Lord, a reprioritization of life. And I think oftentimes if we just think about that which is customarily accepted, you know, the, the overemphasis upon children or an overemphasis upon career. And so often these are things that our culture, our society would absolutely embrace just like that man's culture and society would have embraced the idea of him uh, neglecting his pursuit of discipleship and postponing it until after his father had died. And Jesus says, no, I am so great and so worthy of devotion that the time is now for pursuing me and following after me. Now, the third man in verse 61 said, I will follow you, Lord, 
But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Now, I've always wondered about this character. Perhaps he wasn't there for the uh, first two, but you can't imagine if you're this man that this is going to go all that well with Jesus. His approach to Jesus is, I will follow you, but there's something I need to do first. I need to go home and say farewell uh, to those at my home. Now, the interesting thing about this is that when Elijah, the prophet, came and put his mantle upon Elisha, who would be Elijah's replacement, the interesting thing is that Elisha made a similar request. And Elijah granted Elisha his request. Jesus, however, verse 62, said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so, although Elijah, you know, permitted it, Jesus says, there's no room for that in my kingdom. In other words, a greater than Elijah is now here. The kingdom is worthy of full attention. You know, we aren't to look back. We're to put our hand to the plow and we are to move forward. Now, the interesting thing, of course, here is that this man was holding out existing relationships up against his relationship with the Lord. And of course, so often existing relationships will keep someone from fully and devotedly following after Jesus Christ. So really, these three stories, I think in one sense, they simply communicate, make your decision. Jesus is worthwhile. Make your decision daily, of course. That's the disciple life. It's a daily decision to follow after the Lord. Now, after this, verse 1 of chapter 10, it says that the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, this is interesting, of course, to us because we often think of Jesus with simply the 12 disciples. But again, there was a larger group of followers and Jesus here grabs from that larger group and sends them out two by two uh, into every town and place where he himself was uh, about to go. And so a very organized process, he sends these 72 out two by two. He said to them, now listen to this in verse two, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, there are a couple of important things, I think, for us to glean from the words of Jesus to these 72 disciples. Our following after the Lord will be different from them in the era that they were in. They were going out doing a preparatory work, going out before Jesus into the different towns that he himself was about to go into. And of course, they didn't even have the full, complete message of the gospel to announce. Uh, that would be left to the church after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. But Jesus does announce some beautiful realities that are helpful to us in our modern era. First of all, he announces the plentiful harvest that exists. 
Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus, when he says the harvest is plentiful, this is not the only time that Jesus makes a statement like this. You might remember back in John chapter 4, when Jesus dealt with the woman at the well in such a beautiful way. She went back into Samaria, for she was a Samaritan woman. She told everyone there about the Lord. She says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. The disciples during that testifying time of the woman in Samaria had already come out to Jesus. They'd asked Jesus whether he wanted something to eat. He says, I already have food to eat. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. But Jesus then eventually said to them in John 4, verse 35, Do you not say there are yet four months, then come the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now, the beautiful thing there is that the Samaritans were coming out to see Jesus. It's very possible that Jesus was drawing their attention to the Samaritans and saying, disciples, look at the harvest. It's white. It's ready. Here they are. In Matthew chapter 9, when the Galilean crowds had grown, Jesus then looked upon them with compassion and had compassion because, John 9, 36, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But in that moment and in that context, Jesus looked out and saw them and saw a group of people that he would say, the harvest is plentiful. And here again, prior to the cross, Jesus announces that the harvest is plentiful. It is a threefold revelation or communication of the truth that the harvest is plentiful. And I think it's important for us to realize that in the heart of Christ, the harvest exists. I think often we might argue with this point. Our minds, our hearts, our view of things, our emotions, our response to things might tell us that the harvest is not plentiful. But Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. This tells us that there is a massive work internationally, nationally, regionally, locally, personally to understand that there is a harvest. Our heart might not believe that, but Jesus said it. And so we must uh, adhere and submit to the word of Christ over and above our own hearts personally. Now, beyond the understanding that the harvest exists, Jesus then also tells them as a response to that truth that they should pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The first reaction isn't to go into the harvest. The first reaction is to pray and not just to pray, but Jesus says to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, that's God himself, to send out laborers into his harvest. So the harvest belongs to God. It is his harvest. And we're to plead with God that he would send out laborers into his harvest. You know, when a person does this, there are beautiful dividends that come into their lives. First of all, there's the response of God in 
hearing this very biblical prayer and responding by sending out laborers into the harvest. So that prayer leads to eternal salvation of human souls. But as well, when you pray this way, a beautiful thing happens inside of your own heart. You begin to change. You begin to be transformed. You begin to care more about the harvest. And the more you care about the harvest, the less you will care about so many of the petty, small issues of life. Your focus will be less and less on the self and more and more upon the great harvest that does exist and you will long for it and desire it. And when your perspective is in that place, you are in a healthier spot than you were uh, before you prayed in that way. Now, after telling them to pray, he then sends them. Verse three, he says, go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You know, sometimes when you pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest, sometimes you will be the answer of your prayers. And here these men would pray, but they would also be sent by the Lord. He tells them that they would be heading out in danger or in, you know, sort of a precarious position. He says, you'll go out as lambs in the midst of wolves. <laughs> the beautiful thing about this, of course, is that the church still exists. So what that tells us is not that we have great power, but that our shepherd has great power. For we've been sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Lambs always lose that battle, but not if they have a strong and powerful shepherd to defend them. Now, he gives these men specific directions for that specific time in verse 4. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So this spoke of uh, a lot of simplicity and also haste. Uh, and when, they, when he says to greet no one on the road, Jesus isn't saying don't smile at them, don't acknowledge them, don't wave to them, but please dismiss of the customary Eastern style of greeting where for half an hour you could be standing there on the road exchanging pleasantries. You have a, an important work to do. Greet no one on the road in that kind of way. Get busy about this business I've sent you on. Whenever you, or, or whatever house you enter, verse 5, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, obviously, so many of these directives would foster a great trust in God himself, carrying no money bag, knapsack or sandals, uh, entering into houses and trusting that they would be provided for. Uh, proclaiming peace upon those who uh, are sons of peace and ready to receive them. 
hearing the word the laborer deserves his wages in other words jesus is saying when you go from town to town you need to trust that these people are going to provide for your needs all of that would would cultivate not a trust in people but a trust in the god of the mission that god himself would provide that god himself would watch over his missionaries as they went out and did uh, this work now it is interesting that there is a corporate nature of the reception from town to town. Jesus says, whenever you enter a town and they receive you. So often we're interested in the individual response to the message. But here you had the corporate town-wide response to the message. Jesus said, verse 9, heal the sick and then ultimately say, there was a message to preach, and that what they had to say was, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter, verse 10, a town, and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Now, this was very similar to when Jesus sent out the 12 in Luke chapter 9, verse 5. Nevertheless, he says in verse 11, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, verse 12, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus here compares a few different cities. He talks about a couple of Old Testament cities, Sodom being uh, one of them, Tyre and Sidon being another two. In each of these instances, these are all cities that God had divinely judged in the Old Testament era. He had brought down his visible, physical wrath upon these cities uh, for their various crimes and sins against humanity and against the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Here, though, Jesus says that on the final and last day of judgment... When the judgment comes, when the, when the judgment is experienced eternally, Jesus said it's going to be easier for the residents of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon than it would be for the residents of three other towns. And the three that he mentions are Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, these three towns were towns in the region of Galilee that had all witnessed the ministry on earth of Jesus Christ. They were not guilty of the kinds of sins that had been committed in Sodom and in Tyre and in Sidon. But what they were guilty of was the rejection of Jesus. So, so here's a powerful truth. These Old Testament recipients of God's judgment will have a more bearable experience in the day of judgment than the cities that witnessed the powerful work of Christ. In other words, people are responsible for the revelation that they have received. 
So for those who have received great revelation, there is greater judgment and responsibility to respond to the revelation that they have received. And I think in one sense, another thing that we would note here is simply just trusting the Lord with that final judgment, saying, Lord, I can look at the cross and I see that your judgments are true and righteous and merciful and just. And I believe that you will make the perfect and right decision about every single human being who has ever lived. The one who hears you, Jesus said in verse 16, hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Jesus here is identifying here with these messengers. Now between verse 16 and 17, there's a gap. They went out two by two. And in verse 17, they're reunited with Jesus. And it says the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, when Jesus had sent out the 12, he'd given them authority over the demonic realm. When he sent out the 72, he hadn't mentioned authority over the demonic realm, but here they celebrate it. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, the question, of course, is what is Jesus referring to when he makes that statement? Is he, is he saying to them, you know, previously, I had the front row seat in heaven when I saw Satan banished from heaven and fall from heaven to earth. So in other words, uh, you think you saw something wonderful when you went out there two by two. I saw something more wonderful. Is he speaking prophetically of the moment when Satan will be cast from the earth into the bottomless pit? Or is he speaking of the moment that Satan will be cast from the bottomless pit into the lake of fire? I'm not all that certain, but Jesus here is alluding to something that is far more powerful than what they had experienced. Behold, verse 19, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So in other words, you have great authority when you go out there. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You know, when a believer is able to celebrate primarily that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life, they're able to primarily celebrate their salvation and what Christ has done for them. When that is our primary reason for rejoicing, in so many ways, uh, we are, you know, depression and discouragement proof uh, because our joy is not connected to anything that can be changed or altered. And, you know, when moments of persecution would strike these men and they didn't experience the same level of authority and power, they could be encouraged to know that their names were written in heaven. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows 
who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus here celebrates simply that the Father had revealed himself to these men whom Jesus refers to as little children. They'd humbled themselves and entered in by faith. Then, turning, verse 23, to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I think that we must celebrate what Jesus Christ is doing. These men lived in a special time. They got to walk with Jesus, talk with Jesus, behold the visible, physical Jesus, the Son of God walking in their midst. We, of course, do not live in that era. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. But we also live in special times. Jesus has poured out his Holy Spirit. And every time we see a person being baptized, every time we see someone giving their life to Christ, these are things that cause great joy in heaven and should bring great joy within our own hearts as well. And so blessed are the eyes that see what you see. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.